Hello and welcome to Wellbeing. I'm Jack Hodgins. Today I'll be discussing spasmonic dysphonia, a voice disorder that causes involuntary spasms in the muscles of the voice box. Here to shed some light on the topic, we are talking to Louise Bale, the chair of the Australian Dysphonia Network. Louise is also someone who has spasmonic dysphonia, and we have the privilege of getting her perspective on it. Hello, Louise, and welcome to the program. Hi, Jack. Thanks for having me. When did you first start developing spasmodic dysphonia, and how did that impact your life in its early stages? Um, look, it's it's true to say that um, I'm a bit of a chatterbox, and uh, I first noticed about 16 years ago that when I was talking, my words started to disappear, um, almost like a bad mobile phone reception, just losing bits of words. And um, I do a lot of public speaking in my work and it started to become a problem. So I went to an nose and throat specialist to ask what was going on and that was the beginning of a long journey to get diagnosed and then subsequently to get some treatment for it. So that's 16 years ago. And you work for the Australian Dysphonia Network. What is the Australian Dysphonia Network and what is your role there? Look, um, work is a funny word. We're a volunteer organisation run by a board of volunteers, all who live with voice disorders. Um, and we established it in 2000 and end of 2015, basically to offer support for other people living with the condition or with other voice disorders that were impacted on their life. This is a, an incredibly isolating and um, debilitating condition for a lot of people. Um, I uh, naturally am a positive person and I've been able to be persistent with treatment and get to a point where I was ready to, um, I guess, put some of my efforts into helping other people to find their way. Um, so the Sonia Network basically started as good idea for people um, to offer support. But since that time, we've been working with researchers and doctors to try and raise awareness about the condition um, and to try and get a little bit more, um, I guess, empathy in the community around voice issues. And what are the different types of spasmodic dysphonia and what makes those types different? Well, without going into a really um, a long anatomy uh, lesson, our, our voice box or our vocal folds have two sets of muscles that control them. And there's a set at the front which actually um, make the muscles close and there's a set at the back that pull the muscles open. And so when we're breathing or speaking or using, using that part of our vocal tract, those muscles work in um, a nice, smooth, rhythmic, coordinated way. So when you have spasmodic dysphonia, it can affect either those front muscles and cause a, a muscle spasm that blocks the, blocks the airway off so your voice becomes strangled trying to get the noise out. Or it can affect the back muscles, which pull them open and mean that your words get lost as a puff of air rather than making the sound you need. The vocal folds need to be sitting nice and neatly so that as the, the air passes over them, it's, it makes the sound that you want. So if the muscles aren't in the right position, that can't happen. And those muscles are controlled by our brain. And the, the, the problem is a message between our brain and the muscles gets distorted. 
So if it's affecting the front muscles, it's called adductor spasmodic dysphonia because it's the adducting muscles that are interfered with. If it's the back muscles, it's called abductor because it's abducting those muscles. And some people like myself are fortunate to have both. Um, And that becomes a bigger treatment challenge because we need to damp down the um, the muscles in both the front and back, and it's a hard juggling act to get that recipe right. But um, you know, if you're lucky, after 16 years, you find uh, you find something that works a little bit. Are there any known causes? Not not specific. There are some things that are clues. Um, some some people, it's after a viral infection, so um, you know they've had a, a prolonged uh, flu or something that's affected their voice at some point, and then after they've completely healed from that, they can be left with this interference between the brain and the vocal folds. So a you know post viral thing can do it. Um, for some people, a stress event can can trigger it. So it's almost as if you know, the people who are prone to it can get through life without any symptoms at all. And then something like a major stress can actually be the cause of, of starting it. And then what we know is that um, it, it then continues regardless of the stress, but it will become, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you're living with a chronic condition and you're finding it hard to be heard, then you become stressed. And if you become stressed, your voice becomes worse. So there's, there's that sort of thing. But in terms of what they call idiopathic spasmodic dysphonia, it means that it just happens. There can be, in some rare cases, there's a genetic component, um, but there's not really a great deal known about you know why some people and not others. It's a little bit like... Um, you see people with a tick um, of their eye where they have that sort of involuntary blink or a shoulder or a neck twist and it just kind of, the muscle just does its thing when it walks. It's a little bit like that, but it's happening to the muscles of the vocal folds instead of on the outside, so it's not visible. What is the situation like with cures for it? There's no cure, um, sadly, and this was the big... um, the big reality check for me back when I was finally diagnosed was I was I was glad after over 12 months of trying to find an answer, I was excited when I finally got the diagnosis because I thought that meant that we could now fix it. What I did learn very quickly is, no, you manage, you don't fix it. Um, and that was that was devastating. I, I was really, I sort of thought, wow, that, that wasn't my plan at all. So um, for many people, uh, Botox injections are the thing that help them to manage this. And Botox is injected into the muscles that are uh, irritated or, you know, behaving badly. And it helps to just knock out that overactivity for a period of time. Now, for most people, that's around about four months. If, if it works for them, it's about months and then you repeat and do it again and that becomes a, a long-term treatment plan. Um, it is rare but possible for some people to go into a remission where 
there for some unknown reason. They can they can go for 12 months, maybe even longer, where the effect of the the treatment seems to last, and it, eventually it, it will wear off and it, it comes back. But I, hopefully, um, as time goes by, people do learn their own coping mechanism and um, find a way to to sort of live with it the best they can. Have you seen the knowledge on spasmodic dysphonia improve since you were first diagnosed? Uh, yes, I have. Um, internationally as, as well as locally, there has been a, a much... Um, I mean, it's a, it's a very small... It's a small field in the, the scheme of medical conditions, but the um, for the people that it affects, it's a massive, a massive debilitating condition. The research has been happening over... Mostly, and I guess the biggest biggest thing is that people now recognise it as something that is real, that is neurological, and that is um, not just something that's caused by um, stress or needing to kind of take life. It was for a long time it was thought of as something that was just a psychological condition that people weren't coping with life. But um, nothing could be further from the truth. And are there any supports that still need to be put in place? Oh, absolutely. I think um, what we get excited about the, the, the forward movement within the, the sector amongst the, the researchers and doctors and people that live with it, um, general practitioners and the general community still don't a very good understanding of the impact of voice loss. Now, I'm I'm doing very well today, and you can probably hear my voice in and out a little bit, but I have Botox in my larynx that helps to stop some of the spasms. Without that, my voice would be so strained and limited that I wouldn't be able to be talking to you now. So especially at a time like now where we're all finding ourselves in lockdown, we're telephone and communication is so important. People who live with these conditions become incredibly isolated, lonely, and depression becomes a big issue. So we do need GPs to understand better and the general community to understand better so they can be a little more sympathetic and not just assume that you've got laryngitis or you've lost your voice for a moment and it'll be okay next week. This is something that's really, um, it changes lives and it changes relationships. And for a lot of people, it impacts on their ability to work. Has spasmodic dysphonia made you feel like it's harder for you to have a voice on things? It's funny to say that. When we first began the organisation, we said we want to be the voice of the voiceless because absolutely it's, it's really difficult to beat a drum and get a message out into the public domain when you literally don't have much of a voice. And that's why when you invited us to to actually speak to you, we had to be a little bit careful about who we are to respond. It needed to be somebody who had a good handle on life with the condition, but also somebody who was in a position to be able to be understood and therefore to have a voice to be able to share that that story with other people. Otherwise, we just sit in a cor- corner and find our way to um, manage our, in our small world and the world becomes a much, much tinier place. 
Do you have any strategies that make it easier for you to make sure your voice is heard? Well, like I said in the beginning, I'm I'm a natural chatterbox and I'm an optimist. I'm an optimistic person, and I think both of those things have meant that um, I wasn't going to go down easily. Um, for the first probably for the first five or six years, it was incredibly tough, even for me, to to try to find a positive in this. But I, physically, I have strategies like actually holding my um, my voice box. While I speak, if I if I sort of touch the outside a little bit, it helps to actually send a different signal to my brain, and sometimes that short circuit some of the spasms. So that's helpful if I'm on the phone. Um, things like um, a little cough or a, or a, almost like a hiccup in the middle of speaking can help to reset the, the vocal cords so that I can be talking and if I feel that there's going to be a kind of spasms I can have a little <coughs> throat clearing moment and all of a sudden it becomes a little bit louder and clearer um, so those sort of physical strategies but you know more from an emotional point of view I think the biggest strategy is to remain positive and to to surround yourself with people that understand and to not give up. Do you think it's made you stronger? think so I think it's given me a whole new appreciation of what life is for people living with a disability um, you know I, I look incredibly healthy and and normal from the outside um, and then I open my mouth and sometimes people look and do a double take and think what is going on there um, and you become you become a bit more resilient to that. I've had people think that I'm, particularly in this COVID time, I've had people who are very standoffish think that I've got a cold or I, I'm, I'm infectious and so, you know, don't don't talk to me. Um, wearing a mask has been incredibly difficult because that hides a lot of the expression on my face. So I've had to sort of find other ways around that. So, yes, I think that it, there is an element of being stronger to think of ways of managing that communication in the face of challenges that all of us are up against. Do you think people take having a normal voice for granted? Absolutely. I think one of our biggest things that is our little mantra in the network is that we want people to think about their voice in the same way they think about their vision and hearing. Um, you know, we we often, especially as we age, we have our eyes checked every year. We, you know, if we have a hearing issue after a bit of nagging from the family, we often go and have a hearing test. And if there's a problem, we've got hearing aids or if we've, you know, our vision, we wear glasses quite happily. But nobody ever thinks about the impact of, of voice loss or um, the difficulty that you face when you go to just order a cup of coffee at a coffee shop where you're sitting in a noisy restaurant or for me it was very much professionally you know trying to speak up at a meeting and um, feeling feeling stupid because either I couldn't be heard or I sounded like a an aging woman who had you know very little to offer um, when I knew that deep down I had plenty to offer I just needed to have the space to get it out um, so, you know, I think we do need to value our voice and we do need to think of it as vital to our health and our mental health and well-being. To be able to communicate is just such a natural thing. 
And are there things you could once do, but now you find it really hard to do because of spasmodic dysphonia? Yeah, I mean, I think one of my one of my saddest times was realizing how hard it was going to be to to read bedtime stories to grandchildren. Now, when it, when this first happened to me, I didn't have any grandchildren, and my biggest fear was that they would come and I would be able to do all those those lovely things of communicating with them and reading stories to them. Um, what I've discovered on that is that the kids don't care how you sound and my voice could be as broken or raspy or, or breathy. It, it didn't matter. Um, so that part I've sort of discounted my own fear. But in terms of just talking to your partner in the car, when there's, uh, you're not looking at each other, that's really difficult. So face-to-face conversations are the easiest, but sitting beside someone if there's a noise in the background is really impossible. Um, just the air conditioner is enough to, to put a strain because the, the more you try to project your voice, the, the more the spasms actually kick in and become a problem. So, yeah, basic communication. Um, I live on two acres, so trying to call out across the yard to, to the family, to my husband, is impossible. So we installed a cowbell at the back door and if I need to, to raise someone's attention, I just ring the bell and then we have to walk, meet each other rather than calling out. So there's lots of things. Talking on the telephone is a real challenge. Um, but as I said before, I have a few strategies to manage that now. But for a lot of people, it's, um, it's difficult. And when you were first diagnosed, did you find that there was this really, did it really impact you at first? Like, was there this really big shift, like maybe socially in your workplace? Like, how did that, like, was it a big impact? Yeah, it was definitely a big impact. As I said earlier, I was, so I should say, I started life as a nurse and I've worked, I've moved out of hospitals and I work in population health or health promotion and my work has been and, and continues to be a lot of talking, um, a lot of presentations, a lot of um, community engagement. And so it was devastating. I thought that my life as I knew it was over. I couldn't see my career going anywhere. Um, basically, the the impact of getting the diagnosis was, was pretty hard-hitting. I, um, I think I expected this was going to be something that was short-lived and that I'd just get on with my life. Um, but instead, it took a, a major toll on how I saw myself and how my how I saw my future at work. Um, and I, I really needed to go and um, do some deep thinking about whether I had a future in my current job, which um, I'm not sure if I mentioned I was uh, working in health and I work in, in health promotion, population health. And yeah, by nature, the work that we do, there's a lot of talking, it's about community engagement, um, a lot of research and meetings, presentations and, and the like. Um, so I saw myself as all of a sudden maybe redundant and I couldn't see that I had a future. So I, after a lot of soul searching and thinking that I, that I should retire and become a librarian, um, I decided that I would get some professional help. So I saw a psychologist who 
helped me to come to terms with what she described as a grief process. And she said, you know, you basically I was, I was seeing myself as somebody different with a massive loss, but then I needed to realise that I still had to offer. I just needed to, to find a different way to do that. And it took probably 12 months of counselling to come to terms with that and find new ways to do do my job. But um, that was that was massive. I think I, I felt, um, I don't know, maybe I felt stupid. I felt like people would look at me and think that I, you know, I wasn't very smart because I sounded so um, affected. My voice sounded like I wasn't very uh, intellectual, perhaps. Um, but the other, the other impact was our social life. I suddenly discovered that going out to restaurants wasn't fun anymore. Um, it, you couldn't go to noisy bars or places where you would normally socialize with friends. So our social circle shrank a little bit. Um, we started just seeing our friends at each other's homes instead of going out to restaurants. And that was really hard, not just for me, but for my, my partner as well. Um, so things did change. It was, it was pretty significant. But honestly, I think that um, being seen the psychologist was probably the best thing I did to help me realise that. You know, I really was the same person. It was just that now I had this unique and special difference and I needed to channel my energy into being positive. And are people usually supportive? Once they know, once the people close to me are incredibly supportive. My workplace was incredibly supportive. Um, my friends and family are strangers perhaps a little less so and I think as I mentioned before particularly now when when anyone with a funny voice is looked at um, as if maybe they're sick maybe they've got COVID so they're a bit suspicious but once it's true that once people actually the time to listen to the story and learn a little bit about spasmodic dysphonia they become incredibly interested and that interest then turns to um, a bit of learning about it and, and in a small way contributes to our goals of you know, raising awareness and, and making people think twice about what it is to, to have a natural, normal-sounding voice. What would be the take-home from this interview you'd want people to remember the most? Um, probably what I said before is to value your voice and to think about it in the same way that you think about your vision and hearing, that it is incredibly important and that if you come across somebody who does sound a little different, don't judge, you know, take the time to to think a little bit. You might have to listen harder, be a little bit more patient, but it's okay to ask, you know, what's happening for them because I think the more that we are empathetic and understanding the more accepted people feel. So I think if we could achieve that, that would be a wonderful thing for all of your listeners to perhaps listen to every voice and, and appreciate just how special it is to have a voice that works. Well, thank you for sharing your insight with us today, Louise, on spasmodic dysphonia. We appreciate you taking the time. Thanks, Kate.
happening as such as said it's part of our goal to get the word out there that literally get the word out there so we appreciate the opportunity for um sharing our story if anybody wants to learn more then we'd love them to jump to our website www.aten.org.au or you can use the longer term Australian Dysphonia Network and it will find you there's not very much competition in that space. My guest today was Louise Bale, the chair of the Australian Dysphonia Network. My name is Jack Hodgins. Thank you for listening and all of us at Wellbeing wish you well.